Britain's best-known hauntings, it's commonly assumed, had their heyday in the distant past, a spectral world of brides dressed in white or phantom highwaymen. But in the late 1970s, a sleepy corner of North London was rocked by a visitation from the world beyond. Most of those who experienced these violent disturbances remain with us today. Through their testimony, we'll find out what happened when one family experienced an invisible and malevolent invader, and when investigators uncovered an even more fascinating human story. From our dark and sinister past to the weird and wonderful every day, throughout human history, we have shared stories. In this series, we will blow the dust off some of the most intriguing and lesser known tales. Mysterious disappearances, strange phenomena, local legends, and events too incredible to be pure fiction. Welcome to Astonishing. In September of 1977, a distressed Peggy Hodgson called the police to her small home in London's Enfield. Peggy had witnessed heavy household objects moving of their own accord. Her children, Margaret and Janet, meanwhile, heard terrifying noises from within the walls of their room, as if the house itself was trying to communicate with them. Over the next year and a half, the case caught the attention of not just the UK press, but the wider world. Dozens of observers, including journalists and paranormal experts, witnessed the same phenomena. Unexplained noises, objects launching themselves across rooms, and even the Hodgson children being levitated into the air. Most disturbingly, a phantom male voice followed the family, and even possessed the body of Peggy's youngest daughter. The tabloid press followed the story with great interest for months, and even more closely when reports began to emerge that the haunting could have been fabricated. The moving objects, the knocking in the walls, the terrifying voices. Young Margaret and Janet, allegedly, had done it all. We'll explore how the sceptical and paranormal communities both seized Enfield as an opportunity to spread their ideology, and how the consequences for those at the heart of the story echoed for decades afterwards. 284 Green Street is an average, family-sized home in the suburbs of Enfield, North London, with little to distinguish it from the several dozen others on either side of it. When we talk about hauntings, and places where the barrier between the living and dead worlds are thin, we might think of remote manor houses or crumbling castles. The houses on Green Street, built in the early 20th century, do not fit the profile. They're unremarkable in every way from the outside. A single mother, Peggy Hodgson and her children, Margaret, Janet, Johnny and Billy, moved into the house after Mrs. Hodgson separated from the children's father. The split was far from amicable and left deep scars on the family. In 1970s Britain, divorce was still uncommon and contributed to feelings of shame. Afterwards, money was extremely tight, though the house was just a little too small for a family of five. With kids aged between 13 and 7, Peggy had little alternative. 
This family of survivors was soon to be tested even further by forces unimaginable. The following is an account of the events experienced by the Hodgsons, in particular Janet and Margaret. On the night of the 30th of August 1977, Peggy Hodgson was alone downstairs at 284 Green Street, watching television. The night was warm and still. She couldn't sleep. Worries about money kept her awake on most nights. Upstairs, her eldest children, Margaret and Janet, slept in their shared bedroom. Janet had been sleeping peacefully, but awoke when she realised that something was wrong. She looked around her bedroom. Nothing. She tried to sleep again, putting thoughts of a silent intruder aside. Suddenly, her bed began to shake. It was almost imperceptible at first, a gentle rocking. Then suddenly a violent movement back and forth, as if an invisible force was trying to tip her onto the floor. Her brothers Johnny and Billy yelled from their rooms. It was happening to them too. At once, Peggy climbed the stairs and entered the bedrooms. The movement stopped. Peggy calmed her children and put them to bed again. They were shaken and they slept fitfully. The following evening, Peggy heard a tremendous noise from the upper floor. Storming up the stairs, she entered Janet's room. What she saw that night astounded her. A heavy oak chest of drawers moved invisibly towards the door of the room. Astounded, not believing her own eyes, she pushed it back herself, but the drawers moved again towards the door, scraping the wooden floor as if to trap them in the room. Nothing else moved that night, but strange noises persisted, keeping the family from their sleep. They went next door to their neighbours, Vic and Peggy Nottingham, desperate to escape. Vic volunteered to go next door and check in. He recalled, I went in there, and I couldn't make out these noises. There was a knocking on the wall, in the bedroom, on the ceiling. I was beginning to get a bit frightened. Of his reaction, Margaret said, I'd never seen a big man like that looking scared. The knocking would continue, running up and down the walls over and over as if testing for weaknesses. Most frighteningly, in the dead of night, Janet reported hearing a gruff male voice, as if a man were standing silently at her bedside and whispering in her ear. The incessant disturbances drove the family almost to a breakdown, and they slept that night with the lights on together in the same room. On the third night of disturbances, Peggy had reached her limit, sleepless, terrified, and fearing for the safety of her family. She no longer felt alone in the house, the hairs on the back of her neck raised whenever she entered certain rooms, and she couldn't shake the feeling of being watched. She dreaded the sun going down, the time when the presence in the house seemed to come alive. A police officer, Carolyn Heaps, was called to the scene. 
she entered the house with a sceptical disposition, amused by the reports of moving furniture and disembodied voices. What she saw astounded her. A heavy chair lifting one inch above the floor and moving without human aid. Naturally, she looked for signs of fakery, including hidden wires or mechanisms, but could find none. Heaps would even sign an affidavit asserting her eyewitness account. Despite reporting the incident, the police couldn't find a breach of the law. They were powerless to act. A few nights later, Peggy heard the sounds of screaming from Janet in Margaret's room. Immediately, she recognised something was occurring that was more terrifying than noises in the walls. She entered the children's room, and her blood ran cold. She saw Janet being lifted into the air, screaming. In an instant, the curtains over the window wrapped themselves around Janet's neck more rapidly than human hands could have done so. Peggy screamed and ran to the window, frantically freeing Janet and lifting her down. She collapsed to the floor in exhaustion. Throughout the ordeal, Peggy had felt a pair of malevolent eyes leering at her from the darkness. Defeated, powerless, and without hope, she made one last cry for help. The first report in the press came from the Daily Mirror, the UK's best-selling tabloid newspaper, on Saturday, September 10th, 1977. The sensational story landed on the front page. In a desperate state, Peggy had reached out to the press, hoping to find somebody who could explain her situation and reassure her that she and the family weren't simply going mad. The photographer Graham Morris, who visited the Hodgsons for the story, described the scene. It was chaos, he said. Things started flying around, people were screaming. Morris described being struck in the face by a Lego brick, which was propelled across the room with the force of a cricket ball, and seeing electrical items turning on and off. Morris recorded several unforgettable images of the events. One of his most iconic photos captures Janet suspended in mid-air above her bed, screaming in terror. At first appearing on behalf of the Daily Mirror, Morris eventually began appearing at the house in his own free time, fascinated and compelled by the phenomena he witnessed. He later noted, To me, it was easily the most fascinating thing that's ever happened in my life, beyond a shadow of a doubt. It was fascinating to be a witness of the whole thing. The Daily Mirror's story attracted the interest of thousands, not least the BBC, who sent their own crew to record the happenings. However, their efforts were futile. Upon returning to their headquarters, the crew found that the recordings had been wiped and the metal components inside their equipment warped and twisted. On the far side of London, in the considerably more wealthy neighbourhood of West Kensington, one group of people watched the headlines with considerable interest. The Society for Psychical Research, a non-profit organisation formed in 1882, were not the type to read the Daily Mirror but their ears pricked up when they were alerted to the events in Enfield by reporters at the newspaper. Their quick diagnosis? The Hodgsons were experiencing a poltergeist. 
a kind of supernatural entity which can manipulate objects and manifest sounds here in the physical world. The purpose of the SPR was to gather like-minded individuals to research, investigate and catalogue instances of the metaphysical. Among other triumphs, their members introduced the word telepathy to the English language. While the SPR wrote on apparitions and communing with the departed, they were no fools. The society regularly debunked bad science and defaulted to healthy scepticism. In the 1920s, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a noted spiritualist and member of the SPR, resigned his position and took 84 members with him. He believed the society was too closed-minded. The SPR put too much emphasis on logic and reason, even for the creator of Sherlock Holmes. The SPR sent multiple investigators to the house on Green Street to conduct experiments, but the most prominent by far were Maurice Gross and Guy Leon Playfair. They were no amateurs. Gross was an experienced inventor and engineer, who pivoted to psychical research after the tragic death of his daughter in a motorcycle accident. Leon Playfair, meanwhile, was a well-travelled journalist who had published articles and books across multiple continents, and even worked with Brazil's equivalent of the SPR, the Brazilian Institute for Psychobiophysical Research. They first met at an SPR meeting. Gross, speaking to writer and skeptic Will Storr, spoke of his immediate reaction to the house. As soon as I got there, I realised that the case was real because the family was in a bad state. Everybody was in chaos. When I first got there, nothing happened for a while. Then I experienced Lego pieces flying across the room and marbles. And the extraordinary thing was, when you picked them up, they were hot. I was standing in the kitchen and a t-shirt leapt off the table and flew into the other side of the room while I was standing by it. Terrifyingly. Ross witnessed the entity grabbing the leg of Margaret and not letting go. Several of the adults present had to wrestle Margaret from its grip and swore that an invisible force was fighting against their efforts. Leon Playfair had a name for the entity. He called it The Thing. Gross, Playfair and other members of the SPR would be fixtures at the Hodgson residence for months, though they were forced to contend with frequent and inexplicable tape recorder malfunctions. One of the most visceral demonstrations of the poltergeist's power was in how it used Janet to channel one of the house's previous residents who had died there years before the Hodgsons moved in. Janet spoke in the voice of the elderly Bill Wilkins, a raspy-voiced and ill-tempered pensioner. The same voice she had heard by her bedside was now being channeled through her. Bill, through Janet, claimed that he died in the armchair downstairs after suffering a fatal hemorrhage. Wilkins' son reached out to the Hodgsons to confirm the details of the story. It was all true, he said. How could Janet have known that? Bill would talk through Janet for hours, spinning from topic to topic at random and between truth and fantasy. Bill claimed to still be living in the house and sleeping in Janet's bed. He'd sing nursery rhymes. All of this was caught on tape by Gross. Janet, meanwhile, was unaware of her trances until Gross shared the recordings with her. 
To make sure there was no faking involved, Gross even taped up Janet's mouth. The voice was heard nonetheless, clearer than before. Even speech therapists were confounded when confronted with this evidence, and a full assessment for Janet by doctors at London's Maudsley Institute found nothing abnormal. Peggy sought various remedies for Janet's traumatising experiences, ranging from sleeping medication and therapists to hypnosis and mediums. All failed. Of the possessions, Janet said, it felt like something was behind me all of the time. As the woes of the Hodgson family continued, big names were drawn to the house. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the infamous paranormal investigators, appeared at the house. The Warrens were already known around the world for their role in investigating the Amityville haunting in New York a few years prior. The Warrens' verdict? Demonic possession was in play. Janet suffered a great deal of bullying at her school. She was dubbed Ghost Girl and alienated from her peers. Despite this, and the violence of the entity's incursions, Janet expressed sympathy for it. She told Channel 4 News that she felt used by a force that nobody understands, adding, I really don't like to think about it too much. I'm not sure the poltergeist was truly evil. It was almost as if it wanted to be part of our family. It didn't want to hurt us. It had died there and wanted to be at rest. The only way it could communicate was through me and my sister. As the months dragged on, with no end to the appearances of the poltergeist, the story suddenly took a very different turn. Margaret and Janet, upon close examination by Leon Playfair and Gross, now fixtures at 284 Green Street, were caught faking some of the evidence that a poltergeist had visited. Gross noted that Janet attempted to hide his tape recorder and caught her banging on the ceiling with a broom handle. Researchers recorded Janet on video bending spoons. Margaret and Janet even confessed to a journalist that they had been pranking, though Leon Playfair and Gross retracted this statement on behalf of the girls. The press, inevitably, shared this plot twist with their eager readers. The poltergeist's disturbances appeared to quieten down, and then end in 1979, 18 months after they had begun. The researchers dispersed to write up their findings, and the media scrum suddenly vanished. The Hodgsons were left to their problems and each other once again, with no way to explain what had happened to them. From outward appearances, they were just another regular family. Even before hard evidence emerged that Janet and Margaret had been exaggerating their experiences, the family were accused of fakery. The media spotlight, detractors argued, would have been a compelling motivation for anyone to spin a yarn of ghosts and ghouls. Janet acknowledges that she and her sister did fake some of the physical effects of the poltergeist's presence in the house. When asked about how much was manufactured, Janet estimated I'd say 2%. Sympathetic to the stress that the events were causing, 
Peggy Hodgson would often disinvite guests who pressed her daughters too forcefully, with accusations of stagecraft. Inevitably, only those who maintained an open mind, and ghost hunters who didn't need convincing, remained. The girls couldn't help but make a few errors, until after the girls were informed by Graham Morris that fire tended to accompany poltergeists, it wasn't a symptom of the haunting. The vocabulary of Bill Wilkins? Consistent with that of a teenage girl. Janet and the voice of the entity when it spoke as Bill also shared a habit of changing the subject. It was Leon Playfair who noted this, yet he found a perfectly reasonable explanation. He said, The thing uses Janet's sense perceptions. If she doesn't know something, nor does it. As for the voice itself, which was deep and harsh, the illusionist Bob Cootie, who listened to the tapes which Gross had made with the children, noted that false vocal cords above the larynx can produce such a tone. On camera, meanwhile, Janet was observed putting her hand in front of her mouth while the voice of the entity spoke. Observers of the case note that the family had been struggling emotionally and financially after Mr. Hodgson had left. Peggy was struggling to raise four children, and the children themselves couldn't help but experience severe anxiety. Could the girl's manifestation of a poltergeist have been an elaborate cry for help? One that simply became harder and harder to maintain? Deborah Hyde, editor of The Skeptic, suggests that the attention of two kind older men, Gross and Leon Playfair, could have been a strong incentive for Janet and Margaret to continue manifesting the spirit. The motives of Gross and Leon Playfair, meanwhile, are worth discussing. They were the two individuals who most frequently visited the house, who championed the girls and their experiences, and tried to hush them up when they appeared to give the game away. Leon Playfair's book about the events, This House is Haunted, was published in 1980, just one year after the hauntings ceased. The book remains in print to this day. A cynical observer might note that his actions after the case resemble those of any other writer looking for their next bestseller. In Gross's case, his intentions might have their roots in a personal tragedy. When he was first dispatched with his SBR badge to the Enfield house, as we discussed, he was just a year into his new career as a parapsychologist, following a motorcycle incident in which his daughter was killed. Some have theorised that this event spurred him into his attempts to find hard evidence for a plane of existence beyond our own. Certainly, a man preoccupied with death might have more reason to cling on to hope of making contact. As for the Warrens who pronounced the events a textbook case of demonic possession, their detractors were quick to point out that many of the Warrens' famous cases seemed to revolve around the same thing a big coincidence. Bob Cootie shared no such impression. He wrote, Gross made some of the recordings available to me, and having listened to them very carefully, I came to the conclusion that there was nothing in what I had heard that was beyond the capabilities of an imaginative teenager. It's undeniable that part of the legend of the Enfield poltergeist was fabricated, 
but there are just too many facets of the story that can't be easily explained away. Can we designate dozens of independent observers, among them scientists, law enforcement officials and journalists, as either co-conspirators or credulous enough to be fooled by a pair of preteen girls? Equally, can we also consign the months of documentation, much of which remains publicly available, to irrelevance? As Alan Murdy, a veteran of the SPR, writes in the Fortean Times, Britain's journal of note for the strange and unexplainable, this case is not mere folklore or tradition, but one with evidence and witnesses, together with recordings and documentation available to be assessed. Those present to witness the hauntings aren't trying to cover up their role in the events. They're trying to get the word out. As one of Britain's most famous ghost stories to occur in the modern era, there have been countless adaptations of the events in Enfield. The Conjuring 2, a Hollywood adaptation of the events, centres Ed and Lorraine Warren's version of events with a heavy dose of exaggeration. It's not a credible account of what really happened in the house on Green Street, and it doesn't try to be. But many sleepless nights have been caused by this film's memorable depiction of Bill Wilkins. Ghostwatch, a fascinating 1990s television experiment which borrowed most of its memorable elements from the Enfield hauntings, presented a fictional haunting as a live documentary transmission, ending with a malevolent spirit seizing control of the broadcast. A pivotal plot point sees the children at the heart of the story being caught faking disturbances, only for the adults around them to realise too late that they were forced by the ghost to be caught in the act. Janet and Margaret rarely appear in the public eye. Janet has appeared in one or two documentaries in which she recounts her experiences and tries to make sense of her role in the events. In 2012, she made a rare appearance on the ITV series This Morning as part of a live discussion about the hauntings. Appearing alongside Guy Leon Playfair and Deborah Hyde of The Skeptic, Janet was grilled by the latter about the long-standing accusations of fraud. Human beings are remarkably bad at remembering things, and seeing things accurately, said Hyde. We see things that aren't there. We don't see things that are there. It's very easy to impose top-down processing, ideas that you already have about the world, get imposed on what you're seeing. It's very difficult to say this happened or that happened. Hyde's seeming dismissal of what Janet saw and experienced compelled Leon Playfair to issue a defence of Janet shortly afterwards. Peggy Hodgson died in 2013 in the very home at Enfield where she had lived since the late 1970s. Although the most violent effects of the poltergeist had ceased decades earlier, Peggy had told friends that the presence of the entity lingered in the house. For years and years, she said she never quite felt alone. In 2016, the girls returned to the house on Green Street after many years. Seeing the house in which we grew up often stirs memories, but few could have such conflicting emotions as Janet and Margaret did that day. Setting aside the terrifying voices, the levitation, and the things going bump in the night, 
What's really interesting about Enfield is the psychology of the girls. What compelled Janet and Margaret to contribute to the haunting in their own way, irreparably damaging their credibility? The eyes of the press and the scientific community were already on them. Their fear of being abandoned again, left at the mercy of whatever malevolent being dwelt in their house, could have spurred them to create new and surprising displays of supernatural power. It was a gamble which did not pay off. Whether we believe that a poltergeist really terrorized the family or not, it's worth remembering the lasting harm that would have been inflicted on the girls. At a formative time in their lives, the girls found their friends replaced by gentlemen with cameras, tape recorders, and scientific instruments, and their home turned into a laboratory. The normal tribulations of adolescence for them were replaced with entirely untraveled territory. The shadow, cast by the Enfield poltergeist, felt for decades to come, was a long one. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's story. Head to astonishingpodcast.com to find information about the podcast, as well as links to our Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages with teasers on upcoming episodes. If you'd like to support us, you can also donate directly at supporter.acast.com forward slash astonishing. Your support allows us to invest in better equipment for improving the recording and sound quality of our podcast and ensures we can continue to produce it. In our next episode, we'll blast off into space and pay homage to the unsung little heroes that were an integral part of advancing technology in the last century. Namely, the animals used in Russian, US and other international space programs to test the safety of spaceflight technology before any human had even stepped foot inside a rocket. You've been listening to Astonishing. <laughs>